listening to The Hold Fast Podcast. Welcome to Season 2 of the Hold Fast Podcast. I am your host, David Brandau, and today we're going to continue where we left off a couple weeks ago. I had a lot of audio issues the past couple times I tried to record this, so hopefully this turns out better. But in our first episode, I began warning you of the result of spiritual defection. We went through some verses in Hebrews that show us the call to salvation and what an amazing blessing it is. When we accept that call, salvation, though, must come with a disclaimer. Yes, the gospel brings salvation, and yes, it brings deliverance and healing, but if you defect from your obligations to it, you will be punished more severely than what is described in the Old Testament. Salvation will either be your greatest blessing or your worst nightmare, but which one it is to you is determined by what you do with it. But as we start today's episode, let's begin where we left off last week in Hebrews 10, verse 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. The call to draw near is an invitation that reverberates through the ages, offering salvation to every man, woman, and child by God's unparalleled grace and through His grace alone. Hearing that call and accepting the invitation, while crucial, isn't what being a Christian is. It's the beginning of something so much better. Being a true Christian is a journey where you draw closer to the Creator with every heartbeat. When someone says, I'm saved, they're saying, I am drawing near to God, and my goal is to get so near to Him that I become indistinguishable from Him. The Christian life is not static. It's a whirlwind of transformation. True salvation, a true drawing near to God, is evidenced by becoming more like Him. You cannot have the fruit of salvation and remain the same. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9 defines the characteristics of a true conversion. When you accept the invitation to salvation, you must draw near first with a sincere and genuine heart, without ulterior motive. Imagine how you would feel if you discovered at the foundation of your relationship, your spouse's love for you was built not on who you are, but on what you possess. Or what if you were to realize that your partner's devotion hinges solely on what you've done for them? 
Would you question the genuineness of their love? Would you question the authenticity of their love? True love in a relationship is not built on external factors or deeds. True, sincere, genuine love transcends the natural and is rooted in a profound connection that sees beyond the material and the superficial. Now think about God. How many people only love God because of what he does for them? How many people only love God because they want what he has? God is used for social status, for the feeling of community and for connections. He's used for positions of authority and the ability to speak to groups of people, but God is mostly used for one reason, to get to heaven. Those who use God just to get what they want are not saved. They've heard the call. They've been taught the way has been opened to become like Christ. They know the way to salvation, but instead they choose to use him. They have no intention of submitting to his will. They have no intention of becoming like him. If they could get God's stuff without him, they would. But true salvation is a true love for God, not a desire for what he has or what he can do for you. When we explain salvation to children, we explain it as the way to get to heaven. And in essence, we bribe them. If you accept Jesus in your heart, if you're a good person and obey your parents, you go to heaven. Yet that same tactic has infected altar calls in churches today. It has festered in the minds and hearts of Christians and mutated what it means to be saved. Why do so many Christians believe being a good person somehow means you're worthy of heaven? Why do so many Christians believe calling out sin in the church is mean-spirited and legalistic? Because they refuse to spiritually grow up and learn that because God is love doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility as a Christian and as a disciple to become like God. Simply claiming Jesus as your Lord is not the goal of Christianity. It's the first step in the process of an epic transformation that goes beyond a heavenly reward. Heaven is the byproduct of a transformed life. And we as leaders must understand and teach at the foundation of true salvation is a sincere heart ignited by the desire for forgiveness. A genuine heart searching for hope recognizes the need to cleanse the soul from its taint of sin. A heart without ulterior motive kneels in repentance and embraces a profound sense of unworthiness in the presence of God. And from that place of humility and authenticity springs the pure-hearted pursuit to become worthy of that divine call to salvation. One of the greatest lies ever told in Christianity is that salvation is as simple as saying Jesus is Lord. And with those three words, you're crowned worthy of his sacrifice. Those words mean nothing without a heart that burns with a genuine yearning to be close to God, a sacred yearning that eclipses all else, a magnetic pull toward God himself that's as powerful as it is pure. Your words, no matter how eloquent, 
remain hollow unless they spring forth from a heart that longs to draw near to the Almighty God, not for the perks, not for the rewards, but solely to become like Him. So the first step in drawing near to God is a true heart. The second step is coming in full assurance of faith. As you draw near, you are aware of your sinfulness and you completely believe the only way to become like Christ is through the blood of Christ and not by works. You can never do enough good deeds to produce saving faith. If doing good deeds were the way of salvation, then only the rich would be worthy of God. Yet God in his infinite wisdom broke down the walls between social and economic classes and determined all people will be saved if they come to him with a sincere heart, desiring to be free from sin, repentant, longing for redemption, and a desperate belief that only through Christ can they be saved. Those who draw near to God with these attributes, the truly saved, are those whose guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Hebrews 10.22 Show me a Christian who can live in sin without their conscience condemning them, and I'll show you someone who is not drawing near to God. A Christian, when confronted about their sin, who uses the Bible in an attempt to justify their sin, is not a Christian. A true Christian isn't just someone who wears the label. The fruit of true conversion is a heart that resonates with biblical, godly morals. The true convert's conscience is a compass calibrated to divine north, guiding their actions with unwavering integrity. This doesn't mean a true Christian is perfect. It means when they fall short, when they stumble and fall, they seek repentance. Those truly drawing near to God are those in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 who hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. True salvation is evidenced by sincerity, unwavering faith, internal cleansing, a lifestyle painted with purity and a relentless spirit of perseverance. Someone who draws near stays there and holds fast. How do you know you're saved? Your relationship with God is proof of your salvation. Your relationship with God, just like any thriving relationship, is a two-way street where love flows from both directions. You're eternally secured because God, at the moment you took up your cross to follow him, gave you everything you need to complete your journey of becoming like him. That's his love flowing toward you. And you're eternally secured because you continue to hold fast, to cling to that connection with unwavering determination. That's your love flowing toward God. True Christians hold fast. True Christians embrace the love that flows from God and they reciprocate with a love that fuels their perseverance. Those who are truly drawing near to God, according to Hebrews 10.24, also think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And they do not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. 
The picture painted here in Hebrews of a genuine Christian is incomplete without the heart that not only cherishes their connection with fellow believers, but passionately ignites a fire of love and good deeds among their peers. When you study this list in Hebrews, you uncover a divine design etched by a loving, merciful creator. A blueprint that's not designed to simply escape a punishment we rightly deserve, but rather a way for us to become reflections of the living God. All God asks in return for this opportunity is for us to draw near to him with a heart that's sincere. That's literally all he's asking for. Yet among the myriad of voices claiming loyalty to the kingdom, there are people who wear their faith like a mask and refuse to love God with unadulterated sincerity. And this is my warning for you today. You can hear the gospel. You can understand the gospel. You can believe that it's true. You can outwardly identify with it. And when it fits your needs, line up with what it says. But you can still lack sincerity and defect from the kingdom. If you're going to draw near to God, draw near with a heart that's unmasked and a soul that's sincere. Forge a connection untainted by ulterior motives. Genuinely make God your focus, not just a convenient accessory. If you draw near, but sidestep sincerity. If you continue to pledge allegiance to Christ while living for yourself, only punishment remains. Hebrews 10.26 says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. And this verse defines the character of a defective Christian. A defective Christian, a traitor to the kingdom of God, is a person who continues in willful sin after they have received, accepted, and confessed Jesus as their Lord. Someone who is loyal to the kingdom cannot sin without being crushed under the weight of remorse. They cannot sin without confession and repentance. A true Christian, when they stumble and fall or give in to temptation, will seek repentance and will look for ways to avoid falling into that sin. Why? Because sin isn't their heart's desire. It's a foreign invader, a trespasser they're determined to evict. The traitor and defector willfully continues in sin without a shred of remorse or whisper of repentance and chooses not to surrender that part of themselves because they love their sin more than they love God. The actual Greek words used in Hebrews 10.26 conveys the idea of deliberate and premeditated intention and carries the weight of a conscious choice. The writer of Hebrews is not saying if you sin out of weakness, there's no sacrifice. He's not saying if you sin out of ignorance, there's no sacrifice. Verse 26 is referring to first-degree premeditated sin that's been thought out and contemplated before being acted on. And this is not a new concept in the church. This used to be well-known. This used to be what Christianity was. But as you look around in churches today, you'll find a scarcity of living examples of genuine Christianity. Few sermons focus on what true relationship with Christ is supposed to be. 
Many pastors and leaders have veered away from discipleship and instead are fixated on head counts and collection plates. Any pastor who is unwilling to drive insincere people out of their churches so they can focus on making disciples has lost focus on the mission of presenting people acceptable to God and has gotten caught up in a race to fill pews and offering baskets. Any pastor who lets insincerity fester, who's more concerned about the glint of gold and the growth of souls, has forsaken their call as a shepherd. They aren't fishers of men on a journey of presenting lives acceptable to God. They're desperate men chasing after a mirage of material gain and fleeting success. Pastors, success is not measured by how many hands went up in your altar call. Success is not measured by the size of your offering on Sunday. Success is not measured by attendance or how many amens you get during a sermon. Your success lies in the authenticity and sincerity of the disciples you present as worthy before God. Many church leaders have forsaken their duty of shepherding in order to be seen as successful. Their thirst for recognition eclipses their true mission. And because leaders shy away from preaching biblical repentance, biblical salvation, and the biblical Christian life, they are creating a dangerous vacuum that's eagerly filled by defectors. They blur the lines between the genuine and the disingenuous. The consequences of this are devastating. The truly unprepared are thrust into a crossfire of persecution they're ill-equipped to survive. And the sincere, true believers are overshadowed by the apostates, rendering their shining light indistinguishable from the darkness. Pastors, I urge you to redefine your success. Measure it by the lives transformed, the souls walking a genuine path, the disciples ready to stand before God as a testament to your shepherding. That's a legacy that transcends numbers and recognition. A legacy of souls saved, lives transformed, and a world forever changed. It's okay to label sin as sin. Labeling sin for what it is doesn't close the door on forgiveness. What it does is shows everyone genuine Christians do not accept willful, persistent sin. Yes, people are broken. And yes, we're inherently imperfect, but failing to differentiate between deliberate and temptational sins in your churches promotes treasonous apathy as an acceptable kingdom mentality. You allow people who are close to salvation believe they are saved, and most importantly, you lead people genuinely seeking God to believe they don't need to. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, we are choosing to betray the truth so we can continue in sin. It's that simple. And if this is where you're at today as you listen to this episode, I would encourage you to look at Hebrews 10 verse 32. Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. I encourage you today to think back on how you felt when you first received the invitation to draw near to God. Remember that feeling when you first realized the only hope of escape from the torment you were living in 
was the blood sacrifice of Christ. And listen to this important point at the end of Hebrews 10, verse 32. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. And sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. When all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. And this is what I want you to get out of these verses. Suffering, persecution, and ministry work don't make you a Christian. Identifying as a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. The Bible is very clear on this topic. Identifying as something doesn't magically transform you into what you claim to be. And what the writer of Hebrews is warning people about back then and today is do not be deceived by people who do Christian things and don't deceive yourself. If your faith is only skin deep, if it's a facade masking a heart that lacks genuine confidence, then you do not have a genuine heart yearning for salvation. You can feel you're saved. You can appear to be saved. You can identify as saved and not be saved. True salvation isn't just an external display. It's a fire kindled within a transformed heart that emanates the fruits of the Spirit. External actions even enduring persecution, hold no value if they're divorced from the internal metamorphosis required of a true Christian heart. And here's the shocking truth. Traitors and defectors can get incredibly close. They can go through the motions, endure hardships, and still fall short. These are the ones who march alongside the faithful but have no intention of wholehearted surrender. They live the life, endure the trials, but when it comes to sincerity, they draw back. But how can this be true? We can believe it's true because Jesus said it in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 verses 15 through 20 describes the sower and the fields. And if you remember, Jesus explained exactly what it meant. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message, only to have Satan come at once and take it away. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things so no fruit is produced. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, 
or even a hundred times as much as had been planted. Those who betray the kingdom of God are those who receive the word but fail to bear the fruits of salvation. It's not a seed issue. It's not a sower issue. The pivotal factor is how you cultivate your heart to embrace the word. Only one of the soils Jesus mentions represents a person who doesn't respond to the call of salvation. Every other soil represents someone who claims they're saved, but the fruit they produce reveals the authenticity of their claim. If you draw near with sincerity, if you hold fast and persevere knowing that Jesus Christ is the only way to escape the punishment predestined to destroy the evil in the world, only then can you be saved. And if we jump back to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 37 and 38, we read, For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay, and my righteous ones will live by faith. But I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. Now, for those of you who are listening who are well-versed in the background of the book of Hebrews, I implore you, don't dismiss my words here. I'm fully aware that the original purpose of the writer's message was to address Jewish Christians on the brink of abandoning Christ, tempted to return to the Old Testament rituals for salvation. But let me emphasize this. The essence of Hebrews is pertinent today. There are Christians in modern-day churches teetering on the edge of forsaking Christ. They are ensnared in the belief that the rituals of contemporary Christianity can save them, even in the absence of a sincere heart that holds fast to Christ. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, you only have two options when you're confronted with the blazing truth of the gospel. You can either hold fast to your confession with a resolute hand, do your duty as a believer, strive to become more like Christ with every step, or you can identify as a Christian Desert what you know to be true and turn away. If you desert, if you defect, if you betray, Hebrews 10.26 says there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover your sins. You are left with no hope. If there's no sacrifice for your sins, there's nothing protecting you from the unrelenting fury of God's wrath. You cannot be a disciple of Christ if you do not do what he says. And as Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, you cannot be his disciple if you love yourself more than you love him. You cannot be his disciple if you love him less than your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. You cannot claim to be his disciple if you love God less than you love your sin. And the undeniable evidence of loving your sin more than loving your God is found in the fruit you produce. If you reject Christ's definition of the Christian life, you reject his sacrifice and there is no other way of receiving his salvation. There's nothing left for you. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 6 says it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, 
who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. In Hebrews 10 verse 12, the writer says, But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There is no other way to be saved than to fulfill the requirements of Luke chapter 14. Rejecting these demands doesn't allow you to live by a different set of rules. Jesus is not going to die again with different requirements. There's one way, one name, one sacrifice. To reject Christ is to reject the very source of forgiveness and hope. And if you turn away, if you draw back and defect, you will die unforgiven and without hope. Again, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 through 27 says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. And I want you to pay close attention to this. Those who turn away from Christ are labeled as enemies. If we follow this train of thought and consider who the writer of Hebrews is addressing, it's evident that these aren't unbelievers. The adversaries, the enemies, the ones who stand in opposition, those who cast aside the way of salvation, they're not strangers to the gospel. They know who Jesus was. They understand the significance of his bloodshed and the new covenant he brought. These people understand the inner workings of the Holy Spirit, the transformative process by which God molds a pure heart within them. They identify as Christians, endure persecution, participate in their local congregations, and even labor in ministry. Outwardly, they seamlessly blend in, appearing like good, fruitful soil. Yet the truth is, despite their outward facade, God designates them as his enemies. Why? Because they've turned away from his ordained path to salvation. They've dismissed the requirements of Luke chapter 14. They are not drawing near with sincere hearts. They identify with a body of believers, and yet by their rejection of Christ's way, they stand in opposition to the very God they profess to serve. There is no sacrifice for these people. Only judgment and the wrath God will pour out on them will be worse than any unbeliever of the Old Testament. Hebrews 10, 28-31 says, For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. 
For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. He also said the Lord will judge his own people. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you have been privileged enough to be taught the gospel, illuminated by the Holy Spirit's light, and exposed to the sacred truths of the new covenant, and have a heart that remains insincere, if you reject the offer of salvation, despise Christ's lordship and deny his rightful authority over your life, if you willfully disobey his commands, align yourself with his enemies, and continue in willful sin, you are spitting on the broken body of Christ on the cross. How do you think God feels about that? What should the punishment be? And I know there's going to be some who say, I thought we were in the grace period. Isn't God's mercy unchanging? Isn't the God of the New Testament different from the God of the Old Testament? God doesn't kill in the New Testament. God doesn't open the earth and drag people alive to Sheol. He doesn't do that anymore. Those who God killed in the Old Testament died traumatic deaths, but their eternal suffering is nothing compared to the torment awaiting spiritual defectors. When God elevated his son to a position of unsurpassed honor, he bestowed upon him a name that eclipses all other names. Every knee will bow before him. The voice of God thunders from the heavens, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, yet if you belittle his worth, deem his glory insignificant and render his sacrifice meaningless by the choices you make, know this, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And here is the call to action for this episode. Draw near if you're not saved and continue to draw near if you are saved. Draw near with a sincere heart, a confident faith, a godly moral responsibility to that call. Submit to the Lordship of Christ. Allow Him to wash away your sins and hold fast to this process knowing this is an ongoing cycle of the Christian life. Seek out fellowship with other believers who also walk this out and urge one another on to good works. Pastors and leaders, look around your congregations. Are there people sitting in your sermons who you know are close to salvation but have not fully surrendered? And ask yourself, are you grooming future traitors, defectors, and deserters? Or are you making disciples? Fellow believers, are you holding fast your confession? Or have you forgotten that you have been enlightened? Examine yourself. Examine your heart. If you're drawing near, continue. If you're not drawing near, I beg you to start. Until next week, hold fast. Hold fast.